What's going on, folks? I am Mike Gaston, and you are listening or watching The Currency, America's favorite podcast. <laughs> Don't tell Joe Rogan. America's favorite podcast. I am glad to be with you. Today is Sunday, October 4th, and today we are going to be talking about COVID in chief. This is episode number 63. 63. How could that be? How could this be episode number 63? But here we are. And uh, right now we're live streaming on YouTube. Uh, if you are watching this live, thank you for joining me. When we wrap the podcast up, stick around because we have a little bit of Q&A and chit chat. Do that every episode after we cover our main content. If you're listening to this after the fact and you got nothing to do on a Sunday morning, right now it's 11 o'clock. I'm experimenting with different times. It's 11 o'clock Eastern U.S., you got nothing to do on a Sunday, hop on the live stream. Just go to YouTube, look for Mike Gaston Live, I believe is the channel. Uh, subscribe, get notifications, jump in. We have a lot of fun in the comments. Usually there's a lot going on. Some fantastic people in this community. It's a small community, but I've got to tell you, it's a fantastic community. I'm really grateful for everybody here, uh, but glad to have you guys along. I want to talk a little bit today about a couple things. I want to talk about Uncle Trump. I want to talk about the COVID-in-chief. As you know, the, the, the president got COVID. He got the COVID. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to get um, demonetized or, uh, of course, this channel's not monetized. My other channel's monetized. This one with a whopping 64 subscribers, no threat of being demonetized. Maybe shut down and deplatform, but I don't think I'm going to say anything too, too crazy. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the COVID reportage. I want to talk also about the debates, we had these debates, the, the, the much vaunted, much awaited, much anticipated debate between uh, the president of the United States of America and Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States of America. Uh, uh, come on, man, corn pop fame, J Uncle Joe. I want to talk about that debate a little bit. And then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about where I'm going with my content direction. Talk a little bit about that, and uh, and that we'll call that a show. Those are the three things I want to hit. Of course, like I said, stick around because we'll do some chit-chatting in the end. I want to just say a couple hellos here. Uh, I said some hellos when I opened up uh, before we opened up the podcast, but I want to say thank you to George for joining, also to Medusa's World of Stone. Thank you to Jordy Fitzgerald, clocking in from Victoria, Australia. Uh, also, Sam Huff, thank you for joining, Sam. Proad Jansen, my good friend and golf pro. I believe he's a Dutch golf pro living in Italy. Proad, is that right? Am I getting that right? Doughboy Biscuit, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Doughboy. Uh, and and Proad said, let's throw a few comments up here. He says, perfect time for the EU, talking about me doing this at 11 o'clock as opposed to uh, in the afternoon. And he says, do you really think um, that he has it? And he's asking about Trump. Do you really think that Trump has the COVIDs? Uh, when he gets out of the hospital after five, eight days, he seems God to certain people. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit, Pro, because I think there's, <laughs> I think there's a story there. Hey, Zoltan's here. Zoltan says hello. Zoltan, I gotta say, let me just say something here on the live, on the live stream. The last episode that we did uh, during the episode and even in the comments afterwards got really religious, and people were back and forth. And you seem to be having a good time. At the end of that podcast, I noticed I had a thumbs down and I had lost a subscriber. And I'm like, oh no, I hope I didn't lose Zoltan. So I'm thrilled to see you here. You seemed happy, so I didn't assume the worst. But I'm like, man, I hope I didn't lose you as a sub just because of the conversation, uh, because that would be a shame. You're a good man, and I'm thrilled to have you along. Thanks for joining us. Pro Ed with the, with the strong bicep. 
Um, yeah, so let's jump into it. Let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump. Let's start with the COVID-19 and work our way back to the debates that happened on Tuesday. So as we all know, uh, it's been news around the clock that Donald Trump has COVID. Now, here's, here's the disgusting thing about this. Everybody in the world has been, been just up in arms about COVID. They can hardly breathe, uh, you know, literally and figuratively scared. We've been running around with masks. It's drawn political lines. People are fighting over this. You know, hundreds of thousands of people in America and hundreds of thousands, even more across the globe, have have succumbed to this. They've died because of this. And the majority of people we're seeing now as the data comes out are, are mainly quite elderly people and typically people with comorbidities. Now, comorbidity, what is a comorbidity? Comorbidity just means you've got some other kind of morbidity. You've got this other thing. Maybe you've got cancer. Maybe you've got diabetes. Maybe you, these other health factors that threaten your life. And when you couple these with something like COVID, uh, you end up succumbing. The odds are stacked against you to make it through this thing. So the older you get, your odds go up of, of, of succumbing to the disease. And then when you have other health issues, it, it you know, it, uh, magnifies, I don't know, uh, what's it, it multiplies, I don't know, boy, that's a rough one for me to get to. I've had two cups of coffee, not sure what's going on here. But it multiplies your your potential to die if you get the disease, terrible thing. Now, it's easy to go, hey, look, uh, like the CDC, the American Center for Disease uh, Control, CDC came out and said, hey, we're looking at the numbers now from the very beginning of this thing all the way up to current date, you know, it might be missing a few weeks of data. And when they showed the numbers of, of, um, of uh, mortality, infectious, like if you get the infection, how many people die and how many people live, the mortality rate is very similar to the flu, very similar to the flu. Now, the mistake that people are making is going, this is just like the flu. It's not just like the flu. So the numbers are similar to the flu. But, but the medical impact of this disease on someone is not the same. This isn't just like getting the flu. This isn't, you know, oh, I've got achy joints, uh, I feel miserable, wicked headache, a little bit of a fever, I'm weak, and a few more days I'll be back on my feet. This is different in that it, it attacks different parts of the body. You can have kidney failure. You, I mean, there's some neurological impacts. We don't know the full scope of this disease's impact upon the human body. But when you look at the numbers, the numbers say it's similar statistically to the flu in that if you get this, you have the same statistical kind of chance of survival or of succumbing to it. What's interesting about this kind of new information is what I've been kind of suspecting all along, which is this is not as deadly as we thought it was. We thought this was like a, a, a population killer. It's going to wipe out the population of the world. Not a Captain Trips. Anybody remember Stephen King's novel, The Stand? I believe it was The Stand. And they had this disease that wiped out almost all the population. It was called, and I think they referred to it as Captain Trips. If I remember correctly, I read this in the, like, the early 90s. Um, and then there was like a remnant of people left in the earth, a small fraction of people. Like society was wiped out. It's just wiped out. And I, I don't remember the percentage. It was tiny. Like, I don't know if 1% survived, 5%. But like there was just no one left. And then the novel was about these individuals and groups of people coming together. And you kind of had this 
apocalyptic, uh, almost book of Revelation kind of fight between good and evil. A fight between good and evil. There were certain people that just kind of gravitated to the good side, and there were other people that gravitated to the dark side. And the dark side was kind of led by this guy named the walking dude or the walking man. I forget his name, but he was kind of an incarnation of Satan, if you will. I, I don't remember all the details. It was a great novel. And you found different people being attracted to the dark side for different reasons. And it wasn't always because they were uh, evil in and, of, in and of themselves. They may have been insecure. They may have been mistreated as a teen. And this was an opportunity. They, they found a place in this group where they mattered. They found a place in this group where uh, they found someone who loved them. They were regarded by their peers. And so they kind of gravitated and coalesced around one side or the other. And a fantastic novel. Stephen King, I'm not a big horror guy, but I got to tell you, Stephen King is a great writer. Great writer. And not too sure if uh, how many folks here enjoy reading a good Stephen King novel, but um, The Stand. So we're looking at COVID-19, and and I think the, the imagination, the idea, the, the concern, the worry was that this thing was going to be like Captain Trips. I'm going to wipe out the population. And even if it wiped out 5%, even if it was inverted, whereas majority of us survive, but it wipes out 5% of the population. I mean, that's just, that's devastating. That's just, that's just that's devastating when you look at the real effect on the world we live in. Live in. And now we're looking at this, we're going, okay, this is kind of like the flu. Now it's had a huge impact. And I think a lot of, I think there's some multiple stories here. I think I've shared this before. My hunch is that this came out of a lab and I don't mean nefariously. Often in labs, folks will, scientists will supercharge a virus. They'll kind of create a chimera where they'll take parts of other organisms, slap it together, and, try, and and use that kind of scientifically created organism to test different things. Like, what if we supercharge its resistance to X, Y, and Z? You know, what do we do? And then they use that to test, and that's how they learn. Now, you can question, is that ethical? Is it moral? Is it smart? Uh, that, that's a whole different story. You know, it, it's kind of like Jurassic Park, uh, Michael, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, like life always gets out somehow. You create it, you can't always control it. Life is, it, it learns how to get free. And, um, but, I, you know, so, so I've wondered if this coronavirus, C-19, novel coronavirus, came out of a lab, not because someone's trying to weaponize a, a variant of the common cold, which coronavirus is related to, but if it was just more of a we're experimenting and somehow this thing got out. Now, the thing about a, a chimera is it can't survive indefinitely in the wild. These things don't mutate and get stronger. You know, regardless of what science fiction movies and novels tell us, regardless of uh, dystopian futures and so on, these things, when they get out into the wild and they start to reproduce and they go through their cycles, eventually return to their normal native natural wild state. When you get something like this out in the wild and it's replicating, going from host to host and kind of cycling through its versions, if you think of software, you know, uh, V1, V2, and so on, it doesn't get worse typically. It doesn't get scarier. Now that's, you know, we've, we've been worried about that. And I think early days, the news capitalized on that. Oh my God, we're seeing these, you know, we're starting to see, oh my gosh, dogs are getting it and children are getting it. And we're, you know, in this kind of narrative that we all, uh, it's scary. You start to say, oh my gosh, we're, we're, this thing's getting stronger. It's going to kill us all. But typically these chimeras wind and down and burn themselves out and return to their natural state. 
And that's how you get a chimera. You find something in the wild and you add characteristics and capabilities to it by putting in DNA from other organisms. And eventually you've got this kind of bizarre thing, but it's got supercharged capabilities and it lets you experiment and learn. And so one of the theories I heard early on and one of the things I've been, I've been kind of thinking is that this thing may be a chimera. And over time we'll find that it's not as lethal. That may explain why early on it wiped out so many people and now it's not killing people like it was before. It could also be that we scored a lot of own goals in the beginning. It could be that we screwed up in the beginning. We put people on ventilators when we shouldn't have. That killed them. We did things medically thinking we're helping and we're actually harming because we were ignorant, not because we're terrible people, not because the medical profession sucks. No, medical profession is awesome in many ways. There are issues and aspects. There are issues with the medical profession. There are aspects of the medical profession that need to be made better, just like other institutions in our societies. But by and large, uh, modern medicine is phenomenal. I mean, the life expectancy of people, the ability to overcome certain sicknesses and diseases, unheard of in human history. It's amazing what we have available to us. And usually these kinds of things would be available to royalty and to uh, those with extreme means. But these days, any of us can get into a hospital in the Western world, typically, and get high-level treatment for complex, challenging things. But it may be early on, through our ignorance, that we mistreated a lot of these cases causing deaths. It's possible. Add to that uh, a number of states in the U.S., um, New York, I believe Pennsylvania, there's a handful of other ones, Michigan maybe, I don't remember. I know New York for certain because I both live in New York and I work in this industry. I have clients in this industry. But in a number of states, the governors dictated, demanded um, that old age homes that are caring for seniors have to take somebody in if they have COVID. So what would happen is, uh, your mom gets COVID, she's in her 70s or 80s, you rush her to the hospital. Hospital spends a day or two trying to stabilize her, but she's early days, she still has it. And then they say to the nursing home down the road, uh, we'd like Mrs. Jones to be placed at your nursing home. The nursing home couldn't turn around and say no. Now this nursing home is trying to keep COVID out. They're trying to protect because we knew very early on, we knew this, this was not a surprise, that the elderly are the most vulnerable. And we knew this because... Like the flu, any of these type of respiratory, any of these type of diseases that attack, the elderly are always vulnerable. Nursing homes, this has been under the radar for most of us, but nursing homes, old age homes, uh, assisted living facilities have had to be very aggressive and very smart in the way that they deal with the flu for years now. You work at a nursing home, it's, it's, you, it's, you have to get immunized. You have to get a flu vaccine. You can't work there and say no. This has just been going on for years. They're very good at, at controlling, mitigating and, and that disease and keeping it out even. So when the governors, uh, turn, the governors state, state government turned around and said, well, you've got to take COVID patients. That's like saying you've got to take the fox into your hen house. These people are trying to keep the, the disease out because they've got the most vulnerable population. And so a lot of these deaths, like New York State, I think 10,000 deaths or more are attributable. I think it's more, actually. I think it's actually significantly more. I don't remember my statistics off the top of my head. But these deaths are attributable to government policy. And so where I'm going with all this, we're talking about Uncle Don Trump and the fact that he's got the C-19. Him and Mrs. Trump, Melania, they got the C-19, kids, uh, that... 
this disease initially was a game changer. It was going to kill you. You got it. You were dead. And it's looking now a little different than what we thought it was looking like. And I think, I'm just postulating here, and, and we always want a simple explanation. It's simple, you know, what is it? What is it? What happened? It's never simple. What I'm thinking happened is that A, this, this virus is a chimera, meaning it is a mix of other bugs that was being tested in the lab just to get scientific knowledge, just to push virology forward. This was not meant to weaponize anything. It's just what happens. Uh, and it's illegal to do in the U.S. is my understanding, but they can do it in China. And I'm wondering if they were just playing with the bug in China. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some U.S. backers behind that. This isn't, I don't think this is China versus the U.S. I think China screwed us over. But anyway, so I think that's burning itself out. I think the virus is becoming less lethal. I think the virus is becoming more like its original wild state, which is, yes, it's going to make you feel yucky, but it's typically not going to kill you. Secondly, I think we caused a lot of our own deaths early on because we didn't know how to deal with the virus. I think we overreacted. Think yourself driving in a car and uh, a squirrel runs out in front of the car. Most of us don't yank the wheel hard to the right and take the car off a cliff. We try, to, we try to avoid the squirrel, but at the same time, we don't want to overreact. We don't want to send the car into a spin. We don't want to crash into a tree. We understand it's a squirrel. We, we don't want to hit the squirrel. Sometimes you hit the squirrel. It's a sad moment. I feel bad. I killed a squirrel. I was on the motorcycle actually about a week ago, and a squirrel ran out in front of the bike. And you know, on a motorcycle, you're on two wheels. You're going kind of fast. It's a little bit more dangerous if you overreact. And I tried to do a little swerve. I couldn't. He ran right under the tire. I felt horrible. Uh, but you can't overreact. If I overreacted, I would have, you know, at, at best um, wrecked the bike and at worst killed myself. So I think we did a little bit of an overreaction here. Uh, we kind of took the car off the cliff. And then lastly, I think that there was bad policy and a lot of these deaths are elderly and the, and the CDC numbers show it. And a lot of them are nursing home deaths. And this was totally avoidable, did not have to happen. Real quick, Proed Jansen says, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people rely too much on medicine. They eat bad, drink a lot of alcohol, et cetera. Living more healthy should be government policy. Okay, so here, here you go. Uh, I, I agree with your sentiment. I don't, agree, I don't agree that it should be government policy. So, so there's this balance, and I, and I totally hear what you're saying. We, a lot of what we do is based on our lifestyle. I mean, I'm sedentary. I do a lot of consulting work. I'm sitting in this chair all the time doing client work, client meetings. I'm in front of a computer and I've got a huge schedule. I mean, I'm just churning out lots of work, coordinating lots of stuff, solving problems. I'm traveling. I'm, I'm on the road tomorrow for the week, actually. So I've got this busy schedule. And what ends up happening is I don't get out and exercise. I don't take a walk, and it's a simple walk just because I feel so busy. And I need it. Like if I were walking, I would feel less busy. I'd, I'd feel less stressed. What happens when you feel stressed and you're, and you're putting in uh, you know, 10, 12-hour days back-to-back -back working on weekends? Uh, at the end of the day, you grab a drink. You open a bag of chips. Your, your wife makes a meal, and you, you eat too much because you're just trying to find some way to celebrate, to relax, to soothe some of the anxiety, and you end up looking uh, overweight and you're unhealthy. So I'm with you on that. I agree that a lot of our health issues have to deal with our own behaviors. 
The concern I have is when you make it government policy, now you're telling somebody what they are and are not allowed to do. And so how do you balance? I guess the question is, ProEd, how do you balance people's liberty and their ability to choose what they want and this issue of health? Now, in the past, what we used to do is you would say, look, it's on you. If you act the idiot, you you have to pay the price. So if you don't take care of yourself, don't expect all of society to pay the price. Don't expect us to pay your doctor bills. You go climb a mountain and you get stranded, don't expect us to send a $2 million helicopter rescue team, put their lives in danger, uh, and, and, and put that money on the taxpayer to get you off that mountain. Well, you know, we'll shed a tear. You might make the news. We'll go, oh, three people died on a mountain. They were climbing a few jackasses. They didn't take oxygen or blankets. I mean, there's this mentality that it's our job to fix other people's problems. Now, that said, you want to be a good neighbor. You want to be gracious and merciful and loving and kind to your neighbor. And just because your neighbor screws up, let's say my neighbor does something stupid. And because of that, he let's say he's mowing his lawn and and he runs over a big rock that everybody knows like it's uh, he just does a stupid thing and breaks his mower. Am I going to say, "Hey, look, tough for you." No, I'll say, "Look, I'll either borrow my mower, try to avoid the rocks if you will, or I might say, "Look, take me 20 minutes. Let me come over and knock your yard out for you. I'll take care of it." You you, you help each other. It's not like you say it's not legalism where you go, "Well, you made a mistake, so you're screwed." On the other hand, when people's wanton behavior uh cost them something. Why is it our problem? So I would rather, I mean, I'm with you, Proet. I think you're right when you say that it is our behavior that causes a lot of our health issues. I, how can I argue that? You're 100% right. It hits close to home for me. I think about this all the time. On the other hand, I'm very cautious to say, let's have government fix it. Let's have government tell people what they should do, how they should behave, et cetera, because I just feel like once you give that over to the government, it, the, people need the freedom of choice to feel happy, to feel fulfilled. If you want that donut and uh, and the government says you can't have it, it's just, you know, where does that end? If you're allowed to tell me I can and can't have a donut, if you're allowed to tell me when and how much I'm going to exercise, what else are you allowed to tell me? How many children I'm allowed to have? Uh, you know, what, what house I'm supposed to live in and so on. So yeah, I'm not trying to rip apart what you said, but I just... I. I I hate that idea of giving up human liberty. And the problem with human liberty is it's messy. And this is what the progressives and the utopians can't handle. Human liberty is messy. And when you have human liberty and when you allow for human liberty and when you prioritize human liberty over other things, you're going to have a little bit of a messy society. People are not going to choose the same things. You're going to have diversity of decisions, diversity of goals and aspirations, diversity of behaviors. And uh, you're not going to have uniformity. And the only way you can get perfection, the only way you can have a society that lines up with your vision of perfection of what man can and should be is, is to take away people's liberty. You start dictating to them you know, what they do, what they think, what they say, how they behave, who they marry, where they live, uh, et cetera. So that's a tough one. You can't, you can't um, underestimate the power of bad behavior to ruin someone's life. I agree with you there. But I'm very reticent to say, let's have the government sort that out. George is asking, are you talking about New York? I absolutely am. When we talk about the nursing homes and Governor Mario Cuomo's, oh, not Mario, Mario's the father. Mario Cuomo was the governor back when I was younger. His son, uh, Governor Cuomo, what's his name now? So Chris is his brother. 
wow, I can't believe I'm going blank on Cuomo's name, but Governor Cuomo, how can I go blank on that guy's name? Can't stand that guy. He's so cocky and arrogant. Uh, George says, well, Melania is 30 years old or so younger than Trump. That's right. Oh, and by the way, uh, I saw Trump make a little video uh, just a few hours back this morning where he just addresses the nation. So he's got COVID-19, he and Melania both. Um, the news was reporting all kinds of things. Some people saying he's fine, it's not a big deal. Others, oh my God, the next 48 hours, he can barely breathe. He's being helicoptered out of the White House and so on. So there's a, there, there's a, there's kind of a different stories going around. People are, some people are saying, I hope he dies. It's horrendous. Other people, you know, interestingly people, some people on the left saying, Hey, uh, you know, the people that have been vociferous about their dislike for Trump have come out and said, Hey, I wish you well. Like the, they're being intellectually honest that they're saying C-19 is terrible. They're saying, well, I don't want anybody to have it. Then when the, the president gets it, they're saying, I feel bad for him. I hope he's okay. And then of course, those people are being trashed by other folks on the left saying, how dare you uh, hope that he's okay. We hope he dies. So it's just, uh, <laughs> these things bring out the best in us. And Trump does that. I mean, Trump brings out the best in everybody tongue in cheek, but um, yeah. Let's take a look here. Oh, so I was just going to say that video that Trump did, he, he just kind of greeted the nation and gave everybody an update. He looks a little haggard. He looks a little tired. On the other hand, he seems fine. I, I could tell like he didn't seem like he was struggling to breathe, but he his voice didn't have the power. It usually does, I think, his capacity probably for for um, oxygen right now, not so great. So uh, so there's that. Let's take a look. Uh, ProEd says, so I think what he's saying here is higher taxes on alcohol, sugar, water, cigarettes, et cetera. Let people pay in advance for their future treatments. And, and, and that's, you know, again, I, that's fine. I'm not going to, I'm not big on taxes for anything, but you, you guys know that about me anyway. But you're essentially saying rather than dictate what people can and can't do, have them cover their own costs for the strain they're going to put on the system. I think that's a great argument to have. I'm not going to I'm not going to say yay or nay on that. I think that's a great argument to have and you know we already do stuff like that. I mean I don't know about in the Europe, I would imagine in Europe, but in the US there's some stuff like that and you know the efficacy of those types of policies uh, is questionable and then you get the other aspect of um, of uh, unintended consequences when you do that. And lastly, you know there are already higher taxes taxes, et cetera, on things like tobacco. But the question is, does that money get to the healthcare needs? It's like, so you're hitting tobacco and alcohol higher with taxes, but I can't see a direct correlation between the money that goes in and the healthcare provided. I don't know where that money's going. You know, the government's pretty good at collecting the money and then deciding later, like, well, you know, we could use this for other things. They just can't keep their hands off stuff. Now, Social Security in America, people pay into Social Security. They don't have a choice. It's taken out of your paycheck. Both your employer contributes to it, as do you. And um, and then what ends up happening is Congress uh, can't keep their hands off it. And so you've got all this Social Security money that's supposed to pay out to people uh, as they're retiring. And Congress will use it for other stuff. They'll borrow against it, which is just is stupidity, but uh, but we're talking about the government again, and I'm not big on that. Hey, uh, welcome to Kushdeep Bajwa. Kushdeep, welcome to the show. But Mike, what about wearing helmet and seatbelt as well? It's the same utilitarian versus libertarian debate, I guess. Yeah, it is. And I'm in New York. I wear both a helmet when I ride the motorcycle. I have to. It's the law. And in when I drive the car, it's the law to wear your seatbelt. Now, next door in Pennsylvania, 
you, the helmet is optional and some people wear a helmet and some don't. Here's the thing. I value my life. I, I, and I know, you know, I'm already taking a risk when I'm on a motorcycle. So I wear a helmet. I, I, I just, if I'm going to take a spin, I want my head pro- or spill rather, I want my head protected. And, uh, but I see a lot of people out there that don't. And so the question becomes not so much, you know, should you be allowed to make that decision? But what happens if there's an accident? Who should pay for the guy who didn't wear a helmet who's now a vegetable? And what about his family? What if what if they can't afford to 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 have to care for him after? So it is complex. I'm not I I know I'm oversimplifying, but I have to oversimplify when it comes down to let's just give the government more power. I think I think we've got to have this discussion. We just assume the government should fix everything, and I don't agree with that. On the other hand, we feel as individuals and collectively that somebody else is responsible for my decisions. If I do something, someone else should fix that. Someone else should make it better. We don't want to take responsibility. You know, you even hear these arguments, and I'll make this one up, but they're, they're analogous. Like, I went out with no helmet on because I'm in some state that allows it. I get in an accident, and now I'm, I'm you know, paralyzed and, and speaking through some little electronic device because I had a head injury. And now I'm going to take the state to court because I'm going to say, you should not have allowed me to ride without a helmet. I'm suing you for allowing me to, you should have known better. It's like these people that go, you allowed me to take a big mortgage. I remember when the economic crisis happened, you allowed me to take a big mortgage. You told me I could have this big house. So I, so I got the big house. Now I can't afford it. I'm taking you to court. This is predatory lending, predatory lending. At the same time, if you make $35,000 a year, you know how much money you're bringing home every month. And when someone says to you, oh, your, your mortgage, your monthly mortgage is going to be X dollars, you know you can't afford that. It's just ridiculous. It's like you can't do two plus two math. You can't do simple grade school math. If, you can't, if you're telling me that you can't do simple grade school math, you shouldn't be allowed to own property. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, again, I'm saying you shouldn't be allowed, like the government should stop you. I'm, I'm undermining my own argument. It's rhetorical. I'm just saying... People are running around wanting somebody else to make their decisions right. And we're refusing to take responsibility for our own behaviors. And it's, it's, um, it's problematic. It's problematic. So, so yeah, so good question, Kushdeep. Uh, I think I'd rather err. If you're going to err, because remember, this is not a perfect world. There's no perfect solution. I would rather make the error on the side of liberty and then try to figure out the unique cases where an individual does something stupid. This is the problem. We always go to the lowest denominator when we're making our laws. I look at the public school system in the U.S. I look at the public school system in the U.S. 95, over 95% of Americans are in the public school system. Now, I've made the argument for years that the state should not be in the business of educating the population because the state has a conflict of interests. The population needs to learn to defend itself against the state. This is just human history. Whether it's monarchy, whether it's socialist communism, whether it's democracy, whether it's a republic, you need checks and balances. It's not that all government's evil, but you need checks and balances to keep everybody honest. And and you don't want the state educating your population. And so when the state educates the population, they educate the population to see the world through the lens that's beneficial to the state. 
And so I've been making this argument, we need to get rid of public schooling. And then it's not going to happen in my lifetime unless the, unless the world just gets nuked. You know, we're kind of rubbing sticks together to make a fire and wearing furs for warmth. But people are like, yeah, but Mike, what about the poor people? What about people that can't afford private education? What about? But it's always about the, 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 the minority of the population, the statistical minority people. I'm not talking race here right now, okay? It's about the statistical minority. What about that one kid whose family can't afford education? So we got to provide public education for everybody. And it's just the backwards way of thinking about it. Why not create the best system possible and then find the outliers, the minorities, and say, let's get a solution that takes care of them? I, I mean, there's so much that you could do that uh, would be different. Now, I want to let me get into some of these comments because some people are agreeing and some are disagreeing. Uh, George says, that's always a tough call. Absolutely. Um, Pro-Ed Jansen says, right on to Kush Deep. He's agreeing 100%. Zoltan says, everybody dies. People just want him to hurry up. <laughs> He's talking about Trump. That's the truth. We're all, no one's getting out of here alive. No one is getting out of here alive. There's no doubt. But you're right. There are some people that want it to hurry up. And I've thought the same thing about some of these horrible dictators. Like I remember Zimbabwe, you know, Robert Mugabe, he just seemed like he was going to live forever. And I thought, these poor people in Zimbabwe, when are they going to get a break? Like, is this guy just going to, could he just fall asleep and not wake up just so that the people could get out of abject poverty and being beaten in the streets and having their property taken from them? And, you know, it was just like starvation. It, it, Zimbabwe's horrible. And it was like, this guy just lived forever. I just, you wonder that same thing. Omar Karkut. Totally. Omar Karkatoli, what's going on? Hey, Mike, glad to see you. Omar, I am glad to see you too. Thanks for joining the stream today. I'm glad to have you along. Hope you're doing great. Uh, Proed Jansen said, politicians cannot deal with other people's money. That's right. They're, that's all they want to deal with, though. They never put in their own money, but they can't deal with our money very well. Uh, and that's right. Proed said, it's Andrew Cuomo. The governor of New York is Andrew Cuomo. Thank you, Proed. I was having a, a senior moment there. And then he said, till now, you were spot on. Again, that's why we love your PC. Till now, you were spot on again. That is why we love your PC. What do you mean? So you're saying I was spot on. Did I say something where I'm not spot on? Did I leave the spot on? And PC is politically correct. We love your politically correct. Give me a little bit more information there, and uh, Proed. I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So often when we create our societal solutions, we start with the outlier, the worst case situation. It's the same for the abortion argument. They say, you know, you, most people go, well, you know, I don't like abortion is not good. But what about if a woman's raped? I mean, I hate to even talk about this stuff. What, if, what about that? What about that? We got to make it legal and free for everybody because there are these situations and they are real situations. But no one wants to say, look, let's agree that this isn't good. So let's get rid of these laws that make it like you could go buy a candy bar at the, at the five and dime uh, or a milkshake. Let's, let's not make it. Uh, oh, ProEd says, by the way, great show. Love your podcast, PC. Thank you. I thought PC was politically correct. I just, I'm just not that savvy on the fly, I guess. Uh, thank you, ProEd. Appreciate it. <laughs> Love you too, man. Uh, let's get rid of this thing that we all agree is horrible. I mean, there's nobody, I mean, there, there is a rare group of people that are like, they just love abortion. They think it's fantastic. And it's like, they're going to put it in your face. These are sickos. These are people that are just reveling in, in sickness. But the average American is like, look, this isn't a good thing. We don't think it's a good thing. We don't want women to be in this tough situation, but it's not a good thing. Why as a society do we just say, look, then if we all agree it's not a good thing, let's get rid of it. And then let's have a conversation 
about those wild cards. Let's have a conversation about those outliers. Let's have a conversation about those really troubling, tough, ugly situations. But we don't do that. And I, and I, and I, th- I don't know why we don't do that. We just, as a society, as soon as somebody goes, well, what about, what about? You, oh, yep, good point. Brought up this real strange situation that could, maybe might happen. So we got to make sure that we put laws in place. Now, there are people that are happy to put laws in place because that gives them more and more power. Doughboy says, the solution, number one, is it moral? Number two, is it constitutional? Number three, is it absolutely necessary? If the answer to any of these questions is no, then we should get rid of it. I I agree with you. Uh, The only challenge you're going to have with that is number one. I think in our society today, we do not necessarily agree on what is moral. Uh, One person's moral is another person's immoral, etc. It's interesting how you can have one situation and, and people look at it in two countries. You know, one thing happens and people just interpret it completely differently. And I think that's because we're seeing the world through different value sets, different sets of values, different morals. I agree with you. I mean, I, if it were up to me, I would do things exactly like you're saying, Doughboy. But I think that's the challenge is how do you get a society that does not have shared values to agree on what is moral? Uh, some people say, hey, look, it's moral for a woman to start a business to become a multimillionaire and to keep that money. That's actually moral. She's worked very hard. She's created wealth. She should be allowed to keep it and do what she wants with it. There's another part of society that says, no, that woman should not be allowed to keep it. That's immoral. She should be giving that to everybody else or a large portion of it. And I think this is just where it becomes untenable because we don't have shared values. There was a a time in our society, and, and this argument even was going on early on in America, that we um, valued private property, that, that, that you were allowed to have private property, you were allowed to do whatever it takes to defend that private property, that you had a right to it, that you didn't have any other obligations. Now, you might be part of a church that teaches you to be generous, to be gracious, to be loving with your private property, and ideally that's the kind of person you were. But legally and ethically in the U.S., uh, private property was esteemed. And now that's up for grabs. Now we're saying, well, gee, it's not okay for, to defend private property if people are destroying that private property as a means of protesting something they don't like. It's just kind of crazy how things are changing. George says, public schools here in Austria were really good at least 20 plus years ago when I was in school. Yeah, and that's, that's fine. You'll find in the U.S., George, the way our public schools are set up, they are not federally run. So they're federally funded. All these public schools, rather. I think I may have said private. All these public schools in the U.S. are federally funded, meaning each school district, uh, and usually a school district is based on a town. So if you live in a big city, there'll be a city school district, and then each suburb will have its own school districts. And they will report to the federal government, and they will get um, money from the Fed uh, to help offset their costs. Now, on top of that, each school district has property taxes. So when you own a home in a school district, you're going to pay both property taxes and school taxes on top of that. So the property I'm on, uh, I'm probably paying two, three thousand dollars a year in school taxes. Now, whether you have children going to the school system or not, whether you're retired, doesn't matter. You're paying school taxes, and all that money goes into the school. So what you find is wealthy school districts have typically better programs. And school districts that struggle have poor programs and um, poor quality programs, I should say. 
Uh, that said, you with with this Common Core, which is kind of a federally directed curriculum, it's becoming uh, the government saying, "Look, you can't get federal money unless you're teaching this new Common Core." And if you're doing that, you'll get our money. If you're not doing that, you won't get our funding. And so you're getting, because the federal government's putting money into local schools and school districts, it's able to leverage and twist arms and put out the content and the information that it wants to. And a lot of it's revisionist. A lot of it's, it's just, you know, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast. But yeah, that's the situation. Doughboy Biscuit says that was part of Tom Hoefling's campaign to the elephant in the room called the national debt, which, by the way, was reached way reached twenty seven trillion dollars yesterday. It was twenty two trillion in February of last year. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the national debt, uh, Doughboy, is that human beings create wealth. Human beings create value. And we kind of get this idea that we've got all this debt and if, if and there are too many people and we've got to eliminate the number of people so that we can lower our costs. And I guess if you're running an, a, a, a company and you've got a bunch of employees that are just transactional, they're not creating, they're just getting paid to do the bare minimum, maybe like a, a, a union, <laughs> then you've got a problem. But like if you've hired people that know how to generate value to create, value to solve problems, innovate, and so on. Those people are making money for you. Uh, and, and that's the thing about our economy. People create wealth. People create value. Yes, a child is a bit of a financial burden. When you bring a child into the world, it's expensive. There's no question. It costs you your time, your attention, your focus, your sleep, uh, your worry, uh, and your money. On the other hand, there's a lot of upside. Children bring so much joy and fulfillment they help create a family and and so on. But as they become adults, if you're successful as a parent and your child is able to thrive, they end up creating wealth. I mean, they make so much more than they cost. But that's that's the long-term view. So anyway, Donald Trump and COVID-19, how did we get all the way here? I, I If I were to look at a map, I'm like, where are we? We're on our way to New York City and somehow I've ended up in Miami. How did that happen? So Donald Trump and COVID. So Trump's got COVID. Now, what I think is going to be interesting, just to wrap this up real quick, is what ends up happening with Uncle Trump and COVID. If he pops out a few days later, relatively healthy, to bring it all together, if he pops up relatively healthy, I think what he's going to be able to do is to start to make an argument for, guys, I told you, this thing isn't what everybody's saying it is. And I'm living proof of that. Yes, I'm the president. Yes, I have the finest medical available. Uh, you know, maybe he's going to make his argument for, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know all that. But what I'm saying is if he comes out this other side, you know, relatively unfazed, relatively untouched, meaning he had it, he got over it, and now he's back in the saddle again. I think that's an argument for, as a nation, we need to start talking about liberalizing our economy and normalizing and getting back to work and just figuring out how to live with this thing. This thing's not going away. It's a real thing, but it maybe it's not what we're being told it is. Maybe it's not as bad as they're saying and as bad as we've been led to believe. And maybe there's a way forward. Now, on the other hand, he could die. I mean, I could be doing this live stream right now and the news could be going out that Donald Trump, you know, is taking a dirt nap. I hope that's not the case. Uh, I don't care who's the president. I hope that's not the case. But my point is, it, this could go either way. I don't have a call on this. I'm not saying like, oh, this is BS and Trump's going to beat it. Trump's the best. He'll prove it. I'm not that guy. I'm just saying if he survives this relatively 
easily. He's kind of back at it pretty quickly. And he didn't get some secret super drug virus killer, you know, that, that we don't have access to. He just went through the procedures that most of us go through. I think that's an argument for guys. Why are we shutting these states down? Why are these governors sitting on their uh, people? And why are we not allowing common sense to prevail? Why are we not allowing small businesses to get back to it? Why are we not allowing people to start making a living again and finding purpose as opposed to sitting home and streaming Netflix 24-7 and putting on 30 pounds because we're just stuck in the house and depressed and bored? On the other hand, if he takes a hard one, if Trump doesn't make it through this or it's a brutal two-week, barely-lived drama, then you can forget it. Uh, you, this, you know, we're, the world is done. And I don't mean like Trump's our savior. I'm just saying if Trump doesn't make it, that's the last nail in the coffin for anyone that had more of a liberal view of this saying, let's open things up, let's take our chances, let's protect our vulnerable populations, but let's let normal, healthy people go forward. If Trump doesn't make it, this is bad news. Now, my concern has been, you know, what if there's somebody in the inner circle caring for him that's got bad intentions? I mean, my God, this this is like a novel. This whole thing is like a novel. So we'll kind of wait to see what happens. But uh, in the classic response, thoughts and prayers for the president and the first lady right now. I hope they make it through strong and healthy. Thoughts and prayers for everybody in their circle. I can't believe that Trump didn't get this sooner, quite frankly. He's been out in the public like like a bear. I don't mean a Russian bear, kids, just a bear. And I'm thinking, I can't believe he hasn't had this already. Now, let's talk just real quick about that debate. Looking at all this, I'm thinking, was he suffering? You know, before you get sick, like you, the, the thing's in your body doing its thing, but it hasn't reached a critical mass where you're like, oh, I'm sick. But you run down, you're cranky, you're moody, you're miserable. I watched that debate. I could not believe what I saw. I, was, I couldn't be more disappointed in President Trump I thought Joe Biden did a good job. And I was saying to people, because, you know, everyone's been joking about Joe's cognitive ability. And I said, I don't think he's going to act like he's in a nursing. I don't think he's going to act like he's got dementia. I don't think Joe's going to look around and start, like, asking, like, who am I and where am I and who's that nice man over there? You know, like, when he looks at Trump. I don't think he's going to have this kind of moment where he just collapses. But I, I was certain that cognitively Joe's a little slow on the uptake. He struggles to find his words. He struggles to, you, you, you can see it on his face. He's trying to process a thought. He's trying to get stuff out. Sometimes he's mid-sentence and he loses his way a little bit. Like he's just got cognition issues. I, I, this isn't meant to be a left-right thing. When you observe Joe, forget that he's running for president. He struggles with his cognition. The man's in his 70s. I mean, he's, you know, and you can be in your 70s. If you're listening to this in your 70s, God bless you. You can be in your 70s. I'm not that that far off, 20 years in, uh, I'll be there and and be sharp as a tack, you know. And, and you know, my, my, one of my sons was saying, well, if you watch videos of Trump in the past, he used to speak a lot faster. He doesn't speak that fast anymore. Yeah, he's also in his 70s. And the other thing is people mellow out. I mean, I was a little bit more intense, a little bit more wound up when I was younger. I'm 53. I'm, I'm a little bit more chill, not 100%. Things that used to make me angry don't make me angry like they used to. Uh, situations that used to send me for a, a loop don't send me for a loop. I, I can chuckle at myself a little bit more, et cetera. I, I don't have a problem with people mellowing out, chilling out, slowing down a little bit. It's to be expected. It's part of the aging process. But I think if you look at Joe, I think he struggles. He's got some cognition issues. And you just see it. There's a frailty when he's talking, et cetera. This is the natural progression of life. I was not expecting to Joe for Joe to implode on the stage 
but here's what I was expecting. I was expecting the president to leverage Joe's inability to cognate you know, and to be as sharp against him. And what I saw was a, a man, I'm talking about Trump now, who was just totally clueless of his opponent, of his environment, of the setting, of the people watching. He was belligerent. I mean, he literally came out. He had the first question. He, he barely said thank you. I mean, he, he just like, okay, thank you. And, and he just jumped in and started on attack mode. His face was flushed. He was angry from the moment he opened his mouth. And, and he just, he just, he didn't even take a moment to look at the camera and say, I want to thank the American people. What a great nation. It's an honor to serve you. Like, and, and I'm excited about today's debate. No, no, no decorum, no bigness of character, no gracious leadership. You know, Trump in his talk today, when he said, I'm fine and, you know, I'm keeping my hands on the wheel, he talked about, you know, great leaders wouldn't just hide in their in, in the White House. They'd come out and he was letting you know, I'm a great leader. I'm out there leading. Well, I'm sorry. A great leader is gracious. A great leader is aware of the moments that he or she is in and acts accordingly. Now, I've been a Trump supporter. I've voted for him. I don't love everything that he does. Uh, I don't love every aspect of his character, but I've been a supporter. But I got to tell you, this debate, I was completely disappointed. And I do have to wonder, was the, and I'm not, this is not an excuse. I'm not saying like, oh, it's all because of the virus. But was the virus already having an effect? The guy was just so belligerent. Now, I think it does speak to his character. I think there's a character flaw. Uh, Trump, like, like Obama, like, uh, you know, Clinton and all these guys, they're egomaniacs. And you can say, Obama was never into, Obama was totally into himself. These guys are narcissists. They're ego maniacs, etc. That's not a bad thing. People are like, oh, that that should disqualify you. Yes, it would be great if we could go find some humble farmer with a with a you know blade of grass in his teeth, just out there working the farm, you know, hillbilly or cowboy, you know, just got that country logic and wisdom that helped make America great. Just good working folk and say, hey, Mister Farmer, we know this is the last thing you want, but we need you to serve your country. And he's like, well. Aw, shucks, you know, spits a little tobacco, uh, brushes off his denims and says, well, uh, drive me to the White House. I'll do the best I can. No promises. That'd be great, you know, but that's in a, that's in a movie. The people that rise to the top and the types of political systems that we see and know for millennia are people that have an ego. They have great ambition. They are narcissistic to a degree. These are some of the qualities you have to have. Look at me in front of a camera. You know, I know people my age that are like, I would never get in front of a camera. I would just never do it. It's not just because they're shy. It's not because they're incapable. I know people that are way more capable than me, much more successful. They would never put themselves in front of a camera. Why? Because it goes against their nature. They're not wanting to have their face out in front of uh, tens, thousands, millions of people. I, on the other hand, want an audience. I'm gonna just going to be honest. I want to talk to people. I love having you guys here. I want to talk about things. I want to engage them. Well, why is that? I'm ambitious. I have a bit of an ego. And I don't care that my dad said I have a face for radio. And he was teasing me, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a George Jr. My father's name was George uh, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways. And uh, okay, fine. Uh, I, I don't care. I want to put myself out there. There must be some ego driving that. There must be some uh, element of, I don't know, narcissism. I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. But my point being, if you're going to put yourself out there, it takes a certain kind of person. And to sit and say that Trump is terrible because he's egotistical, well, I'm sorry, who isn't you know, egotistical when you're at the pinnacle and the top? 
I, you know, show me an, a leader in the Western world right now that, that is just this golly gee shucks, I really hate doing this job, but I'll do it to serve my fellow man. I don't know this person. A- Angela Merkel? No. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson? No. I mean, you know, go through the world. Uh, Macron, um, you know, Trudeau? Hell no. That freaking guy loves himself. He's so pretty. What a pretty boy he is. <laughs> Uh, let's look at some of these. Um, but but the point being, I'm going to look at some comments here in a second. The point being, this attracts a certain kind of person. But when Trump got up there, even if you're that kind of person, you have the presence of mind to thank everybody. You have the presence of mind not to make, if you're in a fight, if I'm in a fist fight, I'm not trying to bring more people into the fist fight. If I'm fighting a guy and there's three or four people watching, I'm not attacking people who are just watching, thinking, I hope I can fight all of them at once. That's what Trump did. Chris, Chris, uh, uh, the, 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 I'm going to see again, I'm going blank. I'm really having to work on this. Uh, but the guy running the debate, the, the moderator, and I'm going blank for some reason. He, yes, he was, he was left-leaning in his disposition, and he was throwing Joe more softball questions and throwing Trump tougher questions. That said... He was not antagonistic. He wasn't trying to destroy the president. And if the president had any presence of mind, he wouldn't have gone after the moderator and been antagonistic from the beginning. It's like he he, he made an enemy. It's like, I'm going to make you an enemy too. He just was out for a fight and not smart about it. He's just like an angry bull, an angry bull just charging around. Well, the angry bull rarely wins the matador usually wins. The matador is the one controlling the bull. The bull is just angry. It's charging, and it's and it's trying to kill and gore. But it's not being intelligent about it. And the smaller, uh, less um, presence, you know, less dangerous matador is actually the one that ends up winning if they're trained well, because they know how to make the bull angry. They know how to dodge and faint. They know how to keep sticking in the swords as the bull goes by till eventually the bull exhausts itself and it bleeds itself out and it collapses. I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal, but this is real life. And this is kind of Trump at the debate. He was like this angry bull, just anything that moved, he was going to charge at it. And eventually I think he lost. So you, you know, looking at the debate, I'd say, look, Trump kind of won it. I think most people, if they're being honest, say he kind of won. Like Joe did good, but, but Trump kind of won. But here's the problem. A kind of win is a loss for Trump. Because all Joe had to do was dispel this narrative that he's a drooling uh, nursing home resident, that he can't construct sentences. He was able to construct sentences. He stuck to his talking points. Now, he he screwed up. He lost his temper a little bit. He told the, the president of the United States to shut up. doesn't matter how obnoxious. He, told, he called him a clown. And I think there's a fine line. You know, and some people go, I think it's good that he did that. Yeah. That's fine. That's where we're at. That's the level of discourse right now. But I think there has been a level of decorum that uh, the echoes of which still ring in people's minds, and it just seems wrong. It seemed, I think the whole level of discourse it was terrible between both of them. So I'm not uh, blaming one and defending the other, et cetera. They're both responsible. But I think that the president did a terrible job. He never let Joe talk. If he would have just let him talk, he could have obliterated him. Let him say a few things. Let him get a couple points out and then crush him. Joe didn't have anything to say that was that meaningful. He tried to blame Trump for things that Trump can't control. Uh, when when the moderator asked, uh, Chris Wallace, thank you so much. Uh, when the moderator, George, uh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, we're back to the, the Rogan podcast. Um, 
when when Wallace asked about Trump defunding, you know, this racial sensitivity training, you know, Trump had an opportunity to say, yeah, it's critical race theory. It's destructive. Let me explain why. He, he was ill-prepared. He just shoots from the hip and he's belligerent. And I think that's Trump's thing. You can't talk to him. Someone needs to sit him down and say, you know, like a, like a, like a high-paid athlete, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, we're going to watch the tape. We're going to break it down. I'm going to make you, I'm your coach. You are watching the tape. Who can do that? Maybe his son, maybe one of his sons can do that for him. Someone's got to sit him down and say, you got to watch the tape. Now for Biden, what, is, what does his team do? I think it's a win. I think they held their own. I think Biden didn't implode. And I think even some of his hostility towards the president is going to score some points. I think he hurt himself a little bit when he was unwilling to answer things like, will he pack the Supreme Court? You know, it's, it's fine for you to try to make Trump call out white supremacists, which he's done from the beginning. Even that whole Charlottesville, if you watch that whole statement, which is funny that Trump didn't argue this, he said in that statement that he gets grief for, I'm not talking except for these white supremacists, this neo-Nazi terrible people. There are other people, there are fine people on both sides of this argument. And I think the president's right. There are fine people on both sides. Some people want a more socialist uh, government. Other people are saying, I want to be more nationalist. Those are not evil people, some of them. Some of them are terrible, some are not. Anyway, uh, but he didn't call out, Joe didn't call out Antifa. He tried to poo-poo Antifa. We can all see it. People are watching the news. They know that Antifa is a real thing. They know that they're imposing and scary and they wear black and beat people up and so on. They know that they're responsible for shootings and Molotov cocktails. So for Joe to try to pretend that this is just an idea, Antifa is just an idea, and, and their whole insignia, their logos, they go back uh, pre-World War II. Pre -World War, I mean, you can see the giant Antifa logos on German buildings and so on, old black and white photographs. They're tied to the Communist Party back in the day. So I don't think Joe helped himself in that way, but he did a good job holding his own. And that's all he had to do to call it a win. So I think the president, I'm hoping for his sake, that he can get somebody to sit him down and say, look, we're going to watch the tape. And you're going to take ownership for your behavior, Mr. President, and we're going to help you do a better job. All he needs to do is just shut his mouth for a few minutes. That's all he's got to do. Shut his mouth for a few minutes, let the other guy talk, and then bury him. How hard is that? Let's look at some of these comments here, and then I'm going to get into uh, the last segment here, which I want to just talk a little bit about content and um, where I'm going to go going forward. So George says, right, I need to send my children a bill. Thanks for the reminder. George is referring, of course, to the cost of raising children. George, uh, hopefully those children will repay you many times over in love, support, and caring as you age into the gentle years of maturity. Hopefully they respect and love you and uh, they'll be there for you. And of course, there's some things that money can't buy. Sometimes just the very joy that a child gives you uh, in life, in a moment, in general, uh, you can't put a price tag on that. And um, and why would you? But yes, I'm with you. Invoice those children. What's your hourly rate, George? You need you need to calculate your hourly rate. Um, Pro Jansen, as Elon Musk told. Uh, yep. And I think that's to an earlier discussion, George. I think the U.S. would go nuts if he dies. I totally agree. I think that's I, 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 that's why one of the reasons I'm praying, you know, just for him. But in general, I just don't think our society can handle it. It'll it'll start a civil war. That's my concern. Um, Doughboy Biscuit says, if you watch AEW wrestling, Orange Cassidy and Chris Jericho, 
did a debate, and I thought they did a better debate than Trump and Biden. Plus, it was funny. That's right. Oh, my gosh. I haven't watched wrestling in so long, but I remember the name Chris Jericho. Is he still kicking around? He's got to be older right now. I used to watch WWE back in the day. I had a buddy. He was um, he's still a friend, but he at the time was single. He was older. He was in his... 30s and 40s, single guy, made a good living. And so he had all the all the fun, you know, big television before, you know, widescreens were a thing, big television, all the cable channels. And he lived nearby and, and he was a good friend. So I, sometimes I'd go over his house, we'd have a beer or something, soda pop, and uh, watch wrestling or, or watch Beavis and Butthead. At the time, I was a young dad, my wife and I, two little kids, hardly any money. And I couldn't afford all those toys. And she'd say, yeah, go hang out with your buddy, Jim. I used to watch wrestling, and we, it was great. It was like when The Rock first hit the scene. He was just fantastic, and uh, those were the glory days. And I remember wrestling as a kid. I kind of loved that. Uh, let's see. Pro Ed Jansen again. He says, Mike for president. Hey, from your lips to God's ears. I would prefer dictator for life. It's just easier. The whole election thing is just a real hassle. But hey, if I've got to start as president and work my way in, whatever it takes. Oh, and then Pro Ed says... For 15 years. See, there you go. Now you're talking, my friend. <laughs> Doughboy Biscuit, Trump at the debate. Roe versus Wade isn't on the ballot. Nothing is happening with Roe versus Wade. I didn't hear that, Doughboy. Um, George let me know that it was uh, Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace or George Wallace? I think it was Chris Wallace. Um, and then Doughboy, Joe should have told Trump, this is the most important election in your life, Trump, because I'm going to embarrass you on election day. You're going to lose to a man who doesn't know where he is. <laughs> that would have been classic. And you know what? I, I, he would have scored points for that. If he could have addressed that somehow and mocked Trump in the process, I think that would have been genius. That's actually not a bad, it's kind of gutsy. That would have been great uh, to tease him that way. So Doughboy says Wednesday AEW is going to celebrate Chris Jericho's 30-year anniversary in wrestling. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's uh, he's been around for quite a while. So let me wrap up uh, the podcast section here with just a little conversation about where am I taking this content? Where am I going with my content? And I think today's discussion maybe gets at that a little bit. So I put a video out on my main YouTube channel, which is just Mike Gaston. You can watch that if you're interested. Uh, and I said, look, I've been doing YouTube now for a few years. I've, I think the video I put out was my 106th video, 106. And, and I've been doing YouTube for quite a while. And, and you kind of find your voice over time. You do these videos, you start to find your voice. I initially started with the, the, the concept that, you know, I'm a consultant. I do marketing, brand strategy, business strategy. I'm going to do business stuff, entrepreneurship, marketing, branding, a little bit of wealth creation just because I'm interested in that. And I'm going to use this to kind of build a platform and that'll help my consulting practice and, you know, get my expertise out there and so on. And that's been good. And I've experimented with different things. I've done kind of uh, live streams there. I've done vlogs. I've done how-to videos and informational videos and all that jazz. It's been interesting. But I've gotten to a point now in my kind of career and my life and in the con as a content creator where I want to have um, the opportunity to leverage my, my voice, my life experience, and this platform in more meaningful ways. I'm not going to stop being a consultant. I'm not going to stop doing the work that I do. But I want to start being what I'm calling more honest. And what do I mean by that? I've, I've not been dishonest in the past. And 
and if I were, the only way that I've been really dishonest is that I, I sometimes I'll have to hold back because if I'm talking business, if I'm talking marketing, if I'm talking entrepreneurship, sometimes I hold back a little bit. Not a lot. Like you on this, you folks on this live stream know I'm pretty open about things. But I've held back on political issues. I've tried to stay away from certain, you know, hot topics because I don't want to, I, I don't want to make, I didn't at the time didn't want to make my channel, you know, um, so political that then people are like, I don't want to work with this guy. But I've gotten to the point now career wise, I really don't care. I mean, if somebody doesn't agree with me politically and they don't want to work with me, I really don't care. And I've been living that way for a while anyway. It's not like I've made a decision that I'm getting rid of certain uh, client work. I am already pretty open with who I am. The work I do is not political. I'm not sitting making politics a part of the work I do, but I just, I am who I am. I've gotten to a stage where I just don't really worry about what people think about me. And the clients I work with, they, they may or may not line up with me politically, but they're big enough that they don't care. They're saying, look, I'm not making this petty. I like the work that you do. I respect who you are. And uh, that's enough for me. You're, you're an ethical, moral person. You're good at what you do. Let's do some business. So with the channel, I, I want to evolve the channel and I want to evolve even this podcast beyond talking about branding, beyond talking about marketing or business. I want to evolve it more to dealing with the deeper issues that inform those things. I do that already. I talk about Uncle Ben's rice or you know something like that. It becomes a theological discussion. It becomes a, a political economic discussion. We're covering these things anyway. I'm just, I guess, making a little bit more... Um, official. I hate to even use the word official. It feels like I'm signing off on something, but I'm making it more explicit. I guess that's the word. I'm being more explicit with this is the direction that we're going. I'm going to be talking about more of the issues that are important to society, to important to human fulfillment, important to how do we order and structure a world that allows people to flourish, that gives people the best quality of life possible. And that's going to touch on things like religion and faith. That's going to touch on things like economics. That's going to touch on things like politics. It's going to touch on all kinds of sensitive topics. And, and I think the folks that are here are good with that anyway. You guys have been great. No matter what we talk about, you, you engage the topics. No matter where I come at it, you guys are, are good about it. We argue about things in a way that's healthy. We push ideas around. And that's really what the currency is about, this concept of currency, Someone the other day said, well, I hear the currency and I still think about money. There's a reason we call money currency. Currency means it's a way to move wealth around. It makes wealth current. When you create wealth before there was money or currency, coins, dollars, it was hard to move it around. You might create wealth by, by making something. Let's say you build a house, but then how do I cash in on that wealth that I've created. I need to still eat and I've done all this work, but I don't know how to. So money, coins, uh, dollar bills, banknotes, et cetera, that's a way to make your wealth current, to move it like the current of a stream. But you see, currency goes beyond just money and wealth. I mean, ideas are powerful. Thoughts, ideas, concepts, these are the currency of the modern age. Ideas are the currency of the modern age. We are fighting right now. There are cultural wars happening over ideas that were espoused 200 years ago. Karl Marx, his ideas are deeply impacting the world we live in today. That's the currency, not Karl Marx, mind you, but the currency and the power and the value of ideas and how they affect people and society and our lives. And so you'll see me getting more and more focused on these ideas. I'll still talk about news stories, et cetera. These aren't going to be just... 
intellectual discourses on certain ideas. We've got to look at these ideas as how they manifest and surface in society and day-to-day life. Otherwise, this is a, a college course, and I'm not qualified to teach a college course. Um, but I am qualified, as are you, to tackle these ideas as they surface, as they manifest, and wrestle with them. And, and we're qualified to put uh, our, our thoughts to them, to put our opinions, to look at them through our lenses and our filters and decide what we think. And so you'll notice if you are a subscriber on my other channel, if, if you haven't watched the other video, you're going to see me do more and more things like political, social, cultural commentary. I'm going to tackle some ideas that, that, that wouldn't typically surface on my channel. I'm going to experiment a little bit too because I don't have this all mapped out. This isn't like, well, I know exactly what I'm doing here. I'm just saying I'm taking the gloves off. I'm taking off the, the yoke that's kind of held me back to make me feel like I can't just tackle the stuff I want to tackle. Life is too short to just sit and do the odd marketing video. And I'm still going to do marketing and, and business from time to time. Those aren't, I, I still love those things. I'm just going to start tackling deeper topics and bring that to the table. And I think if you've been here on this podcast, you kind of already know that's who I am, but I'm just bringing some of my other content in line with that. And the goal really is to develop more of a publishing platform that I can put content out, whether it's written, whether it's audio, whether it's video, uh, or a combination that I can become more of a publishing platform, maybe even make room for other voices to join me in that uh, process. So that'll be an evolution. We don't have to worry about that today. But I want to say thank you to everybody on this podcast. I mean, you have allowed me the room to kind of tackle some of these things and whetted my appetite to say, you know what, I want to start bringing my other content in line with the things we talk about on the currency because I just really enjoy it. So guys, Thank you. Now, I'm going to sign off here for the audio version of the podcast, but I'm going to stick around and uh, we can have a little bit of Q&A and some chit chat in the comments of this live stream. So if you're on the live stream, please stick around. But guys, uh, I want to say to everybody, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate I hope that you got something out of this conversation. Make sure to connect with me. Now, some people have been doing this. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, just when you do that, send me a note so that I know you're a listener. Say, hey, Mike, I listened to you on The Currency. Love to connect with you, and I will accept your invitation. Uh, or you can hit me up on Twitter. Just look for at Mike Gaston. Of course, you can always contact me through my website. Just go to MikeGaston.com. You'll find many ways to contact there. You can even sign up for my newsletter, which I'll be starting to send out some stuff pretty soon. But guys, I love you all, and I hope that you've enjoyed this, and I will catch you in the next episode.